This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Monday. We are back with a new week of neonatology review. As you probably gathered from um, the podcast from yesterday, I was ill. I'm responsible for the delay in the release of episodes. Uh, I profusely apologize. But here we are, and we are talking about red blood cell transfusion today. How are you, Daphne? I just, you know, I just couldn't do it without you. <laughs> That's a great excuse. <laughs> uh, so thanks for everybody to be bearing with us. But I think we've got a really good week. A yeah. really good week. Before we get started, actually, since we're talking about that, we have decided that we were going to open this particular podcast to audience members. So if you have a topic that you want to review in the format that we're reviewing topics, um and you want to suggest a topic, then reach out to us. I mean, you can find us on the website. It's www.the-incubator.org. Um, and we're working, because it's going to be a CME accredited activity, hopefully very soon. I'm, I'm going through last hoops to get this finally approved. But um, we most likely will have the opportunity to pay an honorarium to the person coming on, which is kind of nice. Mm -hmm. And so if there's a topic that you think would be uh, worthwhile, then reach out to us. And obviously, um, we will not leave you alone. I mean, we will, <laughs> like, if you want to, when you record the episodes, we'll be, we'll be there, we'll be with you, and, and we'll make this pleasant. But uh, yeah, just just let us know. Yeah, I think it would be a neat way if you're gaining expertise in, in an area of topic or you already have expertise in an area of, uh, of, of study to to come on and share share what you love about neonatology, you know? Yeah. And even if you don't like the format in which we're doing it, so uh, as you probably gathered from <laughs> now, we're doing the history of whatever we're talking about on Monday. If you say, hey, like, I don't feel comfortable doing the history, like, like we'll, we'll, we'll work with you. Like it's not a it's not a big deal. Sorry about that. I have to silence my phone. Okay, but we're talking about um, red blood cell transfusions today, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the history of red blood cell transfusions in neonatology. So that was finally an easy topic for me, right? Because <laughs> the history of um, medicine, blood transfusions are kind of fairly recent, um, even though like blood circulation was described by William Harvey in 1628. And um, there hasn't been much attempt really in transfusing blood into humans. And I think the main reason for that is because for the longest time, as you all most likely know, the staple of medicine really has been the opposite of a transfusion, like bloodletting. People love to make people bleed and uh, assuming that this was therapeutic. So the idea of pushing blood into a patient for therapeutic purposes has not been something that I had to dig very deep for. Yeah, it was like kind of backwards, right? Yeah, it's actually backward. 
<laughs> but uh, how? So, without going into the weeds too much, I want to jump to the first ever blood transfusion. And to to illustrate what I was just telling you about, like we have to actually go to the United Kingdom to the year to the eighteen twenties. There's some, some some there's some arguments about when the first transfusion actually actually happened. But it's kind of neat because it's kind of a um, it's kind of a romantic story mm -hmm. uh and it sort of sort of relates to our field of practice so um the first transfusion is uh credited to dr james blundell who was a british obstetrician and so during the course of his practice in the early 1800s he witnessed as you would expect probably the death of many pa patients from the dreaded postpartum hemorrhage and so to him, the idea of transfusing blood to these mothers sounded quite reasonable. And he conducted some studies on the process of transfusion in animal models. And it's kind of baffling because he uncovered some pretty remarkable things. Uh, first of all, he noted that blood had to be transfused pretty quickly after being drawn uh, from another uh, subject in order to avoid complications. So sort of gathered that shelf life was an issue. Um, and he also discovered that there was a very important to remove air bubbles from syringes when administering blood. So if there's any nurses listening to this, to this, uh, <laughs> <laughs> to this podcast, I think they will feel seen uh, by Dr. James Blundell, who, who knew that you had to uh, flick uh, the syringe and really get those bubbles out. So there's some debate as whether this episode happened in 1818 or 1829, doesn't really matter to us, but Blundell was faced yet again with a case of postpartum hemorrhage. And so in order to save and rescue this, this new uh, mother, uh, he transfused blood from the patient's husband successfully in what we recorded as the first human-to-human -human blood transfusion in history. Now, this was obviously extremely lucky, considering that a biotyping system was not really discovered mm -hmm. until 1901 uh, by Carl Lensteiner, and that the compatibility test for blood would not be described even much later in 1907 by Ruben Ottenberg, so almost like 100 years after this, this thing happened. But Blundell continued... To, after the success of this crazy story where he... Yeah, I mean, a the, delightful story, right? right. He so just had this emergency problem. He found a way to fix it. Yeah. yeah. And I'm and that husband, I imagine, could I could imagine, <laughs> was thrilled to to be I'm able sure. to help, you know? I'm <laughs> sure. There's some there's some discrepancy. I mean, if you look, there's a, there's a beautiful, we'll put it in the presentation, but there's a beautiful um, illustration or engraving of, of, this, of this episode where you see the, the, the husband with his arm extended and you see a tube going from the husband to the mm -hmm. mother, almost as if the blood is flowing mm -hmm. uh, in real time, even though it's um, Blundell sort of developed a syringe, so it, it's not clear whether he pulled the blood out mm -hmm. and pushed it into the to the to the patient. But again, you this is eighteen eighteen hundred, so you um, yeah. But what's funny about it is that he he continued to perform transfusion over the next few years, and he documented actually ten of them over the next five years, five of which showed quote unquote positive results. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine that he probably <laughs> faced the ABO incompatibility mm -hmm. issues. And <laughs> so, yeah. So that's the first episode of transfusion and it gives you a sense as to when it happened, how far into the history of medicine it happened. 
But let's let's speed a little bit ahead and see what some of the other advances were. So uh, in 1914, long-term anticoagulants such as sodium citrates are introduced. In 1940, the RH blood group system is discovered by, again, Carl Lensteiner, Alexander Wiener, and Philip, Le Philip Levine and Ari Stenson. Stenson? Um, and really, the practice of blood transfusion gets perfected over the following years. There's a whole issue of infection prevention, which we'll talk about. Hepatitis B surface antigen testing of blood donor begins in 1971. Testing donors for HIV begins in 1992. And finally, nucleic acid amplification tests for HIV hepatitis C are licensed by the Food and Drug Administration in the, in the 1990s as well. So, like I said, it's... It's a fairly um, it's a fairly recent uh, story. Now, the story I want to take you to is a story in neonatology, and it's and it's quite amazing. Give me one second. Yeah. So, talking about the f so I was then searching for the first ever recorded transfusion in a neonate, and there's this great article in Neo Reviews under the category of historical perspective written by uh, Tansi and Tansi Raju. And it takes you to New York and New York Hospital on March 4th, 1908. And there's a description of a case that's fascinating. And it talks about a baby that was 12 hours of age and the baby develops a hematoma over her tongue. That afternoon, she develops a fever uh, of 102.2 uh, Fahrenheit. She has a subcutaneous hematoma that was noted behind her left ear, extending down to her neck over the next 36 hours. She passed dark color meconium stool, strongly positive for blood. And they make the diagnosis of uh, quote-unquote intestinal infection. So she's treated with some castor oil, some grains of calcium lactate, but she deteriorates over the next three days. They sort of think that her case is hopeless uh, and her skin is very pale. Her mucous membranes are colorless. And so they're, they're pretty desperate. So it was clear to them that the issue was related to anemia or some hemolytic process. And so they understand that this baby does need a blood transfusion, but this had never been tried before in newborns. So the doctors uh, considered uh, giving her a direct transfusion, quote unquote, and asked the father to be the donor to which he agreed. So they, they went to uh, the Rockefeller Institute, uh, not too far from the, the hospital, and, and recruited surgeons Alexis Carell and Gio Brewer, who were uh, cardiovascular surgeons. And so what they did is that they strapped the baby onto a board, and then the father was lied next to her on a different bed. And without giving them um, any anesthetic, uh, they made an, an incision in the groin region of the father, exposing the popliteal vein, the, that's the, of the baby, I'm sorry. The father's left radial artery was exposed and with superb dexterity, as the paper says, Dr. Carell carried out a side-to-side -side anastomosis of the father's radial artery with the baby's popliteal vein to effect a transfusion. Uh, there was no way to assess how much volume was given to the baby, but they said that it was quote-unquote sufficient. Uh, quantity was allowed to flow into the baby until her color changed from pale transparent whiteness to a brilliant red, upon which she cried lustily. 
And then as if exhausted, she slept, the blood vessels were sutured and the baby recovered fully and went home a week later at eight weeks of age, she appeared perfectly healthy. So that's pretty. If, if only, if only all of our intestinal infections <laughs> could, be, could be treated thusly. Right. Um, so the, so the, so the, the, the paper then goes on to explain why no anesthetics were used. They went on to explain a little bit what might have been happening. Um, but anyway, um, I thought this was a very cool story as the first really instance of, of transfusion in neonatology. So after this episode happened in the early 1900s, really not much goes on until some of these discoveries about blood typing, about, um, about RH, uh, the discovery of the, of the RH, uh, group. Um, and that really um, gets the neonatology excited about the prospect of treating hemolytic disease of the newborn. And considering that most blood transfusion in these days given to preterm infants today are for anemia of prematurity, you can understand that when you're talking about like neonatology in the 40s, in the 50s, in the 60s, there was no such thing as like a baby less than 1500 grams surviving enough to really get into anemia of prematurity. So the biggest issue for them was really um, hemolytic disease of the newborn. And the biggest issue was how to perform an exchange transfusion. And that's not really the topic uh, of discussion today. But really, this changes in the 1980s when survival of babies less than 1,500 grams, babies less than 1,250 grams, um, really start surviving and then start requiring more transfusion. So if you look in a textbook today, phlebotomy losses or what's called iatrogenic anemia is really mentioned as a contributor to anemia of prematurity. But this was a considerable issue, much worse than it is today in the 1980s, because remember, they didn't really have micro containers where they could run blood tests on like half an ml. So these babies, a, a significant amount of blood was being drawn from them. And so replacing those blood losses is often quoted as one of the main reasons to need a transfusion. In a 1989 paper by Sacker and colleagues, they state actually that and I quote, a major indication for transfusion of RBC concentrate is to replace blood loss via iatrogenic phlebotomy, quote unquote, bleeding into the lab. I thought that was a very nice mm -hmm. way of, of saying this. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> and so in the same paper, uh, the issue of blood transfusion is very well stated. And they say, and I quote, specific clinical settings in which red cell transfusion clearly are of benefit to the neonate have not been well defined by rigorous scientific mm. studies. And really, it becomes clear that transfusions are administered on a case-by-case -case basis for symptoms that we think are related to anemia and specifically reduced tissue perfusion. So throughout my research of these these 1980s paper, uh, you can gather a lot of various indications for a transfusion. And I mean, I, we'll put that table in the presentation, but there's like tachycardia, dyspnea, tachypnea, pallor, something some people even call like tiring at feeding, poor weight gain, poor growth, unexplained apnea. So there's really a bit of, of everything. Now, in the early 1990s, the question really starts to be asked, like, do clinical and lab findings reliably predict the therapeutic benefits of RBC transfusion? And the question of whether we could rely on hematocrit alone to determine whether there's the, the, whether the functionality really of the body's red blood cell mass uh, can is really something that, that, that people are starting to realize should be asked. And the bottom line is that there's no real paper, there's no real data. Institutions create local transfusion protocols with variable cutoff hematocrits. I've seen a lot of paper quoting that uh, 
a hematocrit of 40 should be kept uh, in neonates. And that sort of was, for a lot of people, the cutoff. But again, this, this is quite variable. And so what's interesting about transfusion in neonatology is that the adult world is going to have a significant impact on how we do things. And so the 1990s mark a dramatic shift in the practice of blood transfusion. First, the last, um, the, the last years of the 1980s are really scarred by reports of patients acquiring HIV through blood transfusion. And this alone pushes medicine as a whole, not just neonatology, to actively try to reduce the number of transfusions given to patients just in order to minimize the possibility of, of contamination and infections. So if you look at this graph from the CDC, like you see how the number of transfusions really go down in the early 1990s just because of this concern. Obviously, in the 1990s, we'll be able to test for HIV and, and all these things will be implemented, but this really like cooled off uh, 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 the majority of the medical community. Um, and so this, this concern obviously translated into the neonatal population. And, and even in the neonatal community, we realized that our babies were receiving a lot of blood transfusion and, and people were trying to minimize uh, the number of transfusions that they were receiving. So in the 1990s, there's still no landmark trials, um, but I think that what starts the first domino to fall is, again, an adult paper, and it's a famous paper published in 1999 in the New England Journal of Medicine from the adult ICU that shows that a restrictive strategy of red cell transfusion was at least as effective and possibly superior to a liberal transfusion strategy in critically ill patients. And I think that when this paper comes out, I think neonatology realizes that we should take a look at this from a critical medicine standpoint. And, and I think it's after this paper is published that uh, you'll see a lot of studies being done in and around the same topic. Um, the first paper that I want to talk about is, I, I would say, is an important paper, but it ended up not being a landmark paper. And it's a paper that came out in pediatrics in 2005. And it's a report from the University of Iowa. And the first author is, is the very famous Dr. Edward Bell. And in that study, they looked at infants who were born weighing less than 1,300 grams. And they were trying to look at the same thing. Is there a difference between transfusion thresholds in these infants? It was a small number of infants. It was 100 infants that were randomized to either a high threshold or a low threshold. And what was quite, I would say, avant-garde about the study was that these thresholds were not set uh, arbitrarily. They were basically established based on the degree of illness of the patient. So they had three categories. The babies could be either intubated, in which case the liberal group was kept with a crit of 46% or more. The restrictive group was kept with a crit of 34%. Um, then you had babies who were on CPAP or some form of supplemental oxygen. And then the liberal was 38% 38 hematocrit. The restrictive group was 28% hematocrit. And then you had the babies who had no oxygen support whatsoever. And in that case, the liberal group had a hematocrit cutoff of 30%. And the restrictive group had a hematocrit cutoff of 22%. So what was fascinating about this study was that they didn't find any differences in mortality between the two groups, nor was there any difference in either ROP, BPD, PDA, or even other respiratory outcome. Mm -hmm. The striking result of the study was that the infants in the restrictive transfusion group, so the ones who did not receive um, 
more transfusions, the ones who were allowed to have a lower hematocrit, were more likely to develop intraparenchymal brain hemorrhages or periventricular leukomalacia. And they had more frequent episodes of apnea, including both mild and severe episodes. And so they conclude that although the, the transfusion program was well tolerated, there's a serious concern about using a restrictive RBC transfusion protocol in the NICU because of the potential harmful effects that can be seen in infants. And so I think this is where I want to leave the audience off today because we mm -hmm. have now, we're reaching this point where it's 2005, adult medicine is moving fast and loud towards mm -hmm. using lower hematocrit thresholds and seeing that outcomes are better. And the only data that we have so far shows that in our case, we have to be maybe going in, a, in the opposite direction. And so whether this small study of 50, 50 babies in each group will turn out to be um, true and will turn out to be consistent in other studies is something that we're going to discuss um, tomorrow. Sounds good. All righty, Daphna. I'll see you tomorrow then. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.